It's Monday, March 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Over the weekend, President Trump issued the first veto of his presidency, rejecting legislation to overturn his declaration of a national emergency to fund a border wall. A dozen Republican senators broke ranks with the president, but it still doesn't mean they don't support his immigration efforts. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us for the veto and more Democrats jumping into the 2020 race. Next, in the midst of a nearly day-long outage for Facebook and Instagram last week, it is easy to think that most people are just mad they can't get some fresh memes or cyberstock their crush. But what you may not realize is that when Facebook goes down, an economy goes with it. Ashley Carmen, tech reporter for The Verge, joins us to talk about the people who build businesses on these platforms and lose out when Facebook is offline. Finally, you've been hearing a lot about addiction to smartphones and how to limit your time in front of screens. The ironic trend happening now is people are getting more tech. People are opting for getting a companion device, a second minimalist phone with limited functions so they can ditch the larger phones. Sarah Krauss, reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how more tech could help you break your smartphone addiction. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The Democrat-sponsored resolution would terminate vital border security operations by revoking the national emergency issued last month. Therefore, to defend the safety and security of all Americans, I will be signing and issuing a formal veto of this reckless resolution. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Last week, President Trump issued his first veto, rejecting legislation to overturn his declaration of a national emergency on the border. He called the resolution dangerous, reckless, and a vote against reality. He said that it was his duty to veto it. We had about a dozen Republicans in the Senate break from the president and vote with Democrats on this piece of legislation. And just to remind everyone what this would do would override the president's declaration of a national emergency, which he did in order to circumvent Congress and find money elsewhere in the budget to build his wall between the U.S. and Mexico. We passed the House, passed the Senate, President Trump vetoing it, as you said, his first veto of his presidency this weekend. And he had been very critical of his own members. But the Republicans who voted against him said, Mitt Romney said this was not an opposition to the wall, this was not an opposition to the president, that this was a vote they took because they felt the division of powers in the Constitution said it's Congress who gets to decide how money is spent and that the president was violating that separation of power. Right away, the uh, speculation swirls are, are Republicans breaking away from the president. There's 250 Republicans in Congress, 197 in the House, 53 in the Senate. Only 10 percent broke ranks with the president on this vote. And as you were saying, it's mostly about keeping the power of the purse with Congress, things like that. But the president really still does have a firm grasp on the party. And, and most of them still do agree with him on these issues of immigration and the border. You know, we saw a number of them saying, well, the separation of powers things. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really cool with that, but this is the border. And we have to stick with the president on the border. I think that there was a little bit of different tone about power and, and executive power from Republicans who were supporting the president that had been critical of the prior administration for use of executive orders. So it was a little bit of a philosophical test for some of them. But I do think that we saw generally most Republicans sticking with Trump. And now that he has vetoed this, this goes back to Congress, we would expect them to take a vote to override the veto. And we would expect that vote to fail uh, in the House. And, and, and additionally, they would unlikely to have the votes of the Senate. 
President Trump was getting a little criticism over the weekend because he was attacking the late Senator John McCain for, in his words, spreading the Steele dossier. I guess there was a report that sent it out to director, F, then FBI Director James Comey. Somebody on his staff had shared the dossier with a number of press outlets. So the president was hitting back at him over the weekend saying just another stain on his record, basically. The president had quite the Sunday on Twitter. Of his many Twitter rants that we saw over the weekend, he complained repeatedly about John McCain. This has been a point that he has made. There was quite a number of responses to those tweets in which he said that he called him the lowest of his graduating class from the Naval Academy. He took a couple of other swipes at him that he should leave the man alone that he died. Uh, his daughter, Meg Megan McCain came out and criticized the president on Twitter as well, saying at one point that no one would love him as much as they loved John McCain and that he should stop using Twitter and go hang out with his family. So it was it was a bit of a Twitter weekend right. for, for Donald Trump. Finally, moving on to those that would wish to unseat the president. We had another person, another pair of people actually stepping into the race, the presidential race. Kirsten Gillibrand was the latest one. She released a video called Brave Wins. She sets herself up in direct opposition to the president in the first half of her announcement video. And she even said that she's going to be delivering some type of a speech at the Trump International Hotel on March 24th. So bringing it right to his doorstep. It's a bit of a risk, too. I mean, you let potentially the president be such a defining piece of your campaign. I mean, there's no doubt this election is going to be a referendum on Trump. But these candidates are going to have to find something else to talk about and some other way to define themselves beyond the president. And it's a little bit of a, of a gamble, I think, doing your first major speech, literally, possibly literally in the <laughs> right. shadows of a Trump hotel. And then the other big name that came into the race was Beto O'Rourke last week as well. He's been getting a lot of blowback from uh, other people in his party. I mean, not too much, right? Everybody's still playing relatively nice, but it's just kind of a preview to come. I mean, at one point, you have to fight each other to differentiate yourself and get ahead of the pack. But I know Senator Amy Klobuchar was saying stuff, Julian Castro, Senator Cory Booker. Everybody was responding to what Beto O'Rourke had said in that Vanity Fair piece that, where he said he was born to be in the race. Not quite knives out, but maybe we're seeing them start to to come from their sheaths a little. A lot of criticism of that line that he was quoted as saying, born to run. I saw someone bought the website 2020 Beto for America and has made it fundraising for the women senators who are running wow. and they've uh, <laughs> taken the quote, born to run and strike out the word born and wrote the word worked hard to run. <laughs> for his part, uh, he did so, say he would pick a, a female running mate if he did get the nomination. I think that we're watching a party that's having a real debate about identity, about who they are, about whether or not America is sexist. If that was part of Hillary Clinton's problem, it was just sort of inherently that people weren't going to vote for her. And real quick, just the last one, Joe Biden, uh, you know, he's one of the last pieces of the puzzle that I think people are waiting for him to announce his bid for the presidency again. And he was at some Democratic dinner over the weekend and he said, I have the most progressive record of anybody running for the uh, excuse me, anybody who would run. So he had kind of this verbal slip up and, but people in the audience started cheering him. He's one of the last pieces of the puzzle that everybody's waiting for. That's right. And he was in front of a hometown crowd. He was in Dover, Delaware with his state's Democrats. So of course they were really enthusiastic, but he is the last piece. It looks really likely that he runs. I think we're going to see a, a different version of the discussion we just saw with Better Works announcement. And then we're going to have June just around the corner, months away, when they're all going to have 
have to get on a stage with each other and debate. And that's really where I think we're going to see the knives come out and, and, the, and the differentiating start to happen. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Facebook is an ad-based business. It's worth billions of dollars, and its primary way of making money is through ads. So the people that are taking out these ads are often local businesses. I I specifically focused on small businesses, but I mean, most every company uses Facebook. Joining us now is Ashley Carmen, tech reporter for The Verge. Last Wednesday, there was a big outage on Facebook and Instagram. And whenever these things happen, obviously always starts off as a minor inconvenience. It's like, oh, I can't check in with my friends or I can't find those funny memes I want to check in on to relax. That's kind of the first thing that everybody thinks of. But an interesting angle that nobody really realizes is that there's a whole economy that plays out on Facebook and Instagram, whether it be through advertising or influencers, things like that. There's a lot of money that plays out on these platforms. So while they had an over 14 hours, I think, that the outage stretched beyond. This is all time that people that are paying for advertising, trying to do business on those platforms, really couldn't do a lot of business. Tell us a little bit about that. I really love this headline, so I'm just going to put it out there. It's called, When Facebook Goes Down, an Economy Goes With It. And yeah, it really hit on these points that you're bringing up, which is that Facebook is an ad-based business. It's worth billions of dollars, and it's primary way of making money is through ads. So the people that are taking out these ads are often local businesses. I I specifically focused on small businesses, but I mean, most every company uses Facebook. And so the reason they're taking out these ads is to either sell something, like if they're retailers, or get clicks on a website, which inevitably they hope to turn into some kind of conversion where they can get a customer out of it. Or perhaps they're using it even for a free thing, but in the hopes of eventually upselling this person, which was one of the people I interviewed for this story. What ends up happening is when this platform, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, not so much, but Facebook and Instagram really go down, these businesses just lost a big part of how they market and hope to make money for the day. Explain to us exactly how this Facebook economy works. The people pay to gain impressions, people pay to gain conversions. There's all sorts of stuff that that are at play. Facebook has its formal ad service, which is where you can set a budget. Anyone can do it. You can set a budget. You can say what your goal is. You can say impressions, which just means I want 300 people to see this, or I want to get as many eyes on this as possible, or conversions, which is like, I want 400 people to click through my website. And what Facebook does is actually very interesting because they've kind of set themselves up for situations like this, where they only charge advertisers for the results. So they're not going to charge you a baseline and then not actually deliver. They promise to only charge on what they deliver. But what I talked about in my story is how there's kind of this side economy that's built up around influencers, so people who are really popular, typically on Instagram, but they exist for Facebook too, where these companies can make side deals with them off the platform. It has nothing to do with Facebook's formal program. And in those cases, I mean, you're kind of flying blind. Only recently have contracts and influencer negotiations become a thing. So if you have a formal negotiation and contract, you might be able to get your money's worth and get a guaranteed what you want out of that influencer deal. But the person I profiled, Jason Wong, who sells fake eyelashes and also he has various products that he sells, made a deal with an influencer, multiple influencers. And in his case, he made that deal through private DMs. So they didn't have a contract and he's not really sure if he'll be able to get his money back because the influencers technically 
fulfilled their side of things. They posted about his product, but unfortunately for Jason, no one was online that day. <laughs> exactly. Nobody saw it. But that's how it is for a lot of businesses, even businesses that aren't particularly relying on direct sales, things like that. They expect to lose money just because they didn't get those clicks. They didn't get the engagement to set up future business. Jason seems like a smart businessman. He talked about how they've diversified how they market. So because he lost that revenue that day, he honestly didn't sound very stressed. I was like, okay, you, you're really zen. Good for you. He, <laughs> he seemed to like not be worried. I mean, he came back. I assume he figures he'll make up the lost revenue somewhere else. But if someone had built their business solely on Facebook and Facebook went down, that's a problem. And I heard that from another source that I talked to who mentioned that this whole situation stressed for her that they need to diversify. They need to make sure they're not vulnerable to outages because if you put all your eggs in one basket, you never know what's going to happen. Right. And even people that are advertising specific events like, hey, I need you to sign up for this online training class or something, something that is time sensitive. I mean, those people, if you're doing a last minute push, you know, the day before or something then and nobody saw it, then you have no signups. You have no people showing up to your events. Yeah, that was a very interesting situation that I actually hadn't really thought about because the beauty of Facebook and Instagram is that, like I said, anyone can access their ad tools. You and I could go on right now and make an advertisement probably for this podcast. Yeah, so, it's so easy to do. Exactly. And so you have people like this woman I talked to, Candy, who is a wellness coach, and she happened to be holding a training the next day after this outage. And she was like, I'm going to put ads out to try to get more people into my training, which is a free training. But for her, she tries to put them on her email list, which then just kind of brings them into her universe where she might be able to sell them products. So like, it didn't cost her money in that exact moment, but it cost her potential clients in the future. So it's just very interesting how Facebook money plays out not just in the immediate, but also in the future. A lot of people are dependent on it. And as you said, really, a whole economy can go down when these platforms are not online. Ashley Carmen, tech reporter for The Verge, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. how you find the line between simplicity and functionality. And it's something that I think is sort of a tension that exists even among the device makers that make these phones is how do we give people what they want and the confidence to leave the house without being anxiety ridden. Joining us now is Sarah Kraus, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to be talking about smartphones and how people are addicted to them. We have a love-hate relationship with our phones. We love how easy they are to use, how it helps us connect with everybody, but we hate how much time we spend on them. It's starting to become a problem so much so that companies like Apple and Facebook have started introducing things into their platforms on uh, how to limit how much you're using it. Or it'll give you a notification. You've been using it this long. You should stop now. So the new thing is the new tactic that people are using to break some of this habit is to buy a second phone, a phone with more limited capabilities so that you don't have that constant connection to the phone and to social media and things like that. Tell us a little bit about that. There is a growing group of consumers who are struggling to limit their screen time. And one of the ways that they are trying to do that is to just buy a second device altogether and leave home with a simpler device, leaving their primary smartphone at home. And some of this is meant to sort of improve their interpersonal relationships where they think sort of social media and always being connected has gotten in the way. And in some cases, people just like carrying something lighter if they're just doing a quick run to the grocery store or going out on a date night. The big irony is that in order to use technology less, we have to buy another <laughs> item of another technology. Device. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. There's a bunch of things on the market now, some that are gaining in popularity, 
One of them is the Palm Companion device, about the size of a credit card, I think I've, I've seen. And, yeah, uh, it and just that has one mo- is just a mini smartphone. It still has all the functionality of a smartphone. It shares a number with your primary device. It's just smaller. But other devices out there, like there's a, a credit card size phone from a company called Light that's based in Brooklyn. There are the good old-fashioned clamshell flip phones. There's another simple phone from a Swiss maker called Punked. Those have very limited functionality so that you can't really access social media sites. You can just make basic phone calls and texts. The uh, punked phone actually is the one that interests me the most for a, a person that's super connected to your phone, always on it, you know, getting the notifications. That one really is more just like a, a classic flip phone type thing with the added benefit of it can be a Wi-Fi hotspot. So in that case of, hey, I do really need to respond to an email or something, I can open my laptop up and at least connect through the phone there. So that one was was the one that interested me the most. Yeah, that one. And, and I think that you touch on a theme of all of these, which is how you find the line between simplicity and functionality. And it's something that I think is sort of a tension that exists even among the device makers that make these phones is how do we give people what they want and the confidence to leave the house without being anxiety ridden, without going so far that they're then addicted to just a different device. What's the price point on these? Because the newest thing, and we're talking about smaller phones, things with limited capabilities as compared to our normal phones, we're seeing these tablet size phones that you can fold in half now so they can be a little smaller to fit in your pocket. But those things are $2,000. Regular iPhones now are $1,000. How, yeah. how much are these newer uh, companion devices? These newer devices are in the 300 to $350 range, which is not cheap per se. And, and when you compare that to you know a simple flip phone, um, which is more in the range of you know 20 to $50, there is sort of a, a full spectrum of what you can get. But this new model of phones designed for this screen time limiting purpose are in the three to 350 range. The people that you've talked to, how are they finding these new devices are helping them? They talk about a little bit of anxiety up front when they first leave the house with just that one simpler device, but they say that it makes them more sort of aware of the world around them. They stop and smell the roses. They feel the sunlight um, as they as they go through the world. And they said, you know, when they're with their kids at the park, they're paying attention to their kids more than their phone. And even though, you know, some of these devices still have some smartphone functionality, if they're smaller, it's easier to put away. It's easier to ignore. But I think the whole thing sort of speaks to this moment of commoditization in smartphones. You can only add so many cameras. A lot of the new phones on the market have basically the same functionality and you couple that with this moment of sort of reckoning with our relationship with social media and instead of wanting to buy the latest and greatest new phone, people are going in the other direction and saying, actually, if I'm going to buy a new device, maybe it should be a simpler one. We've been hearing for a lot of time when the subject comes up about overuse, addiction to your phones, the kids are spending nine hours a day on a cell phone or, or in front of a screen. The first thing everybody says, well, get away from the smartphone, get a dumb phone. You know, that's something that's just simpler. In all of your mm-hmm. reporting, all of your experience, what have you come across that might be the best thing? Well, the thing that, that was sort of consistent across the people that I talked to was that they acknowledged that they couldn't get rid of the smartphone device, that it's too intertwined in their professional and personal lives to put it aside forever. So they needed that to have mostly for professional purposes, but in some for personal reasons as well, to be able to FaceTime or video chat, et cetera, but that they recognize that there were pockets in their lives where they had gone too far in being tethered to it. And those were the places where if they had something simpler, they could still be connected and still feel safe and still feel like they could check in with the people that they love or work with, but they didn't need to be staring at a bright candy bar sized screen to do that. Sarah Krause, reporter for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter, 
and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.